I want to pray before we start. Father, I do thank you. Wow, for so much. For you believing in us in this crazy way that you let us fulfill your will on the earth. <laughs> Who are we, Lord, that you're so mindful of us and then allow us to do these things? You're an amazing God. I just worship you. I thank you. I glorify your name and say you are a good God. You are goodness itself. You are love itself. Thank you for letting us have a part in what you're doing in the earth today. Help us to hear. Help me to speak. But help us to glorify you, Lord, in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was just thinking, you know, Cody leads worship, but he doesn't do it like a lot of people, other churches do it. He, he does it in a way that really directs us to Jesus. You know, really makes us focus on that relationship with him. And I, I just, Cody, I appreciate that very much. I've been in lots of places where it isn't quite that way. So we've been talking about core values. Now, if I had my teacher's pointer, I'd go over here. And there they are, multiplication, transparency, generosity, service, unity, and worship. And I was just looking at it now and thinking, you know, the worship one is the only one that's just not directed toward another believer. Hopefully not. That's wrong. Just so you know, we don't worship other people. Okay? But all the rest are about our relationships with people here on the earth. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, unity. Which I know sounds like the most boring thing you could possibly want to listen to this morning. So I'll try to... No, I'm not going to song and dance. That's not going to happen. But anyway, I will do, we'll do something to make it a little bit more interesting. Here's the thing about unity. <clears throat> Disunity is the big issue. Strife is the big issue. Strife is a killer. I've seen it destroy churches, uh, school, Christian schools, businesses, relationships for sure, marriages for sure. When strife comes in, that's the opposite of unity. It can be very destructive and, and powerful in the wrong way. But unity, our tagline, and I love this, on, like on the website, if you look at our tagline for unity, it says, compelled by love for the sake of the person next to you. That is so powerful. And really, all of these, except for the worship one, are about that, compelled by love. Love is going to be, it should be behind everything. Now, one of the things that, um, so unity is that state of being um, one, together. Um, the, uh, the first definition in Webster is, not being multiple. So that, I mean, a lot of times in a definition, you, if I was a teacher, I'd say, no, don't use a negative to define something. But that's how they defined it. Not be a state of not being multiple, the state of being together, being one in harmony. And so, like I said, one of the ways we really need to think about and discover what unity is is think about what it's not. It's not conflict. It's not disagreement. It is not division or divided vision it's not those things and we're all different in many ways but we're united and unified in other ways like in our you know language in this part of the world is more of an issue than it is up north where I'm from um, because of so many Spanish-speaking people and I don't know about you but it frustrates me that I can't understand 
It frustrates me that I can't speak. And, and so you see how just that, just that one distinction can make such a difference. So bless. How many of you are bilingual, by the way? Come on, admit it. Put your hand up there. I'm not going to make you do something. That's interesting. And, and so that makes a difference in how much we can reach out to speak people who speak a different language. How many of you speak Russian? Probably not very many of you, you know? So we have those kind of limitations, but we're united in our vision that we have here. Um, unity in our hearts and unity in our hearts with others all comes out of our inner being, all comes from a love relationship with Jesus. So the first thing I wanna say is unity is God's method. He wants us all united to him and then us as believers, and I'm making a distinction here, believers united with one another. It's super important for our purposes. Um, way back in the, you know, Adam and Eve, they had a close united relationship with Jesus, with God, with the Father really, and before they sinned. And from that fall in the garden, when Adam chose to serve the enemy instead of God, it's basically what he did, um, God had a plan to reunite with us, to unite with us. He had that plan. It required a lot. It required him giving everything, right? His son, he gave everything he had to, re to have us back, to have this relationship, to be reunited with us. And uh, this is his goal for all mankind. Every single person on the earth, he wants to be united with them. That's the heart of God. That's the passion of God. That's what he's about. His highest priority, his overarching goal. That's it. That's what it is. If you've ever wondered what's God thinking about, he's thinking about drawing people to himself based on love and loving so much. So we ought to have this core value of unity in our lives as well. Even in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, we, David wrote, oh, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Most of you know if there's a fight at Thanksgiving or Christmas, it is not a fun time, right, in your home. And that's a very common thing, unfortunately. But how good and pleasant it is when God's people, a distinction again, when God's people live together in unity, for there the Lord bestows, brings blessings. He brings blessings and even life evermore. So our eternal life is based on being united to Jesus, right? Being united with God, that gives us eternal life. So in this unity, we find blessing and eternal life itself. And our Father longs for this type of relationship with him and within the body of believers. So John 17, starting in verse 20. This is, a, this is right before Jesus went to the cross. So like I've, like I've said before, whatever he's saying right before he's going to the cross, you know it means something to him. He wants us to hear something. And so he'd been praying for his close disciples, but then he makes a shift, and he starts praying for all the believers, including us, those of us who are believers. And he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe, like us, right? Those who will believe in me through their message. So this is for us that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, I don't even begin 
to claim that I understand all that. I mean, like, we know that when we get born again, the Spirit of God comes to reside on the inside of us. I get that. But then we're in him. So much of, uh, of the epistles, especially Paul writes, in him you're this, in him you're that, in him you're whatever. You know, good things, wonderful things. But somehow he's in us and we're in him. And by the way, baptism is that beautiful picture of us being, him being in us, but then us immersing ourselves in him, in his vision, in his life, in his purposes, and all of that. So it says that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right there, that tells us part of the wonder of sharing our faith is having this united life with Jesus. If we're full of division and strife, it's an ugly thing to people around us. 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, I have loved them even as you have loved me. So I see this unity thing as being vital to all the rest of those over there. For multiplication and service, everything. Unity, it has to start with unity that's based on love. So Jesus is describing this oneness that he has with his Father and the Holy Spirit, but you can hear his, the cry in his heart for the believers of the world. The culture when he was living was similar to ours in that there was so much division. There was division between Jew and non-Jew, right? The slave and the not-slave, the Romans and the not-Romans. That was all going on. It was ugly. He saw it firsthand. He watched what was happening firsthand. He experienced it, and he knew how divisions destroyed people, destroyed relationships, removed hope for people. And that's why he's praying for us at that time. He doesn't want that happening to us. He's the unifier. He's the mediator. He's the one who changes everything. And even I think about, I was thinking about when he taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants that unity from heaven to be on earth. He wants us living the same way. He wants us living as if we're living in heaven as if we walk in this complete trust in him, this complete faith in him, we should be living different life than the unbelievers around us. That's for sure. Okay, all through the epistles, <clears throat> we're in encouraged to unity within the body. I'm just going to give you one example in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul here is writing in a way that he really wants, he is also living in this time of division. 
And he wants believers to realize how important it is that we have this common focus in every area. And I'm emphasizing the believer thing, and I, I don't want to just say, um, you know, don't have any relationships with unbelievers because that's wrong. But you can have your most intimate friends, um, if you're a believer, it's hard to have the most intimate friends be non-believers because you'll have this frustration in it. Your true fellowship is with other believers. But what's our reason we have the relationship with the unbelievers? God's overarching goal to bring them into the kingdom. So I'm not saying don't have friends in, in the world. I'm not saying that. But just know he's told us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That means don't make... I mean, I watched a business connection one time with a believer and an unbeliever. And it can be done, but I watched it just... It was awful what I saw happen. Anyway, just always remember God's overarching goal in every relationship. Um... He's dependent on us. I mean, he doesn't like he goes around. He's not going around zapping people with eternal life. He's dependent on us to do it right. And mainly that just means having the right heart. It always goes back to our heart with him. So unity is powerful. Number two, unity is powerful. But I want to say this. Division is also powerful and how it works. But all through the Old Testament, there are examples, of Bible accounts of those who rebelled against God's plan, against his plan, against his authority, and um, that created division instead of unity. And so this division was powerful enough to stop the plan of God. Just look at what, how, what Adam did in one sin. It changed God's ideal view of, not that he didn't know that he would need a backup plan, but he knew that. But anyway, it's our, our decisions are powerful before God. And sometimes God will act really quickly, swiftly, to make a change, to bring order back. Um, but sometimes that sinful state of division goes on for 40 years, for example, 40 years in the desert. Because of division in the Old Testament, sometimes he caused people to wander for 40 years. Um, he allowed enemies to conquer them in battles. Rebellious kings led uh, with tyranny and terrorism. All that was going on. And basically it was leaders who went the wrong way. Leaders who didn't choose God's way. But there's always a way to instantly, and I say instantly, in our hearts. I know sometimes there's things that you have to fix later. But there's a way to instantly make things right. And that's turning to God in true repentance. He's made a way. For us to say, Lord, this isn't right. I'm not right. This relationship isn't right. We go to him and, and uh, decide from our heart to do it God's way. Make a change. That's repentance, not just feeling bad. Repentance isn't just feeling bad. It's making a change. You haven't truly repented until you've changed. But that's the anecdote to any kind of division, any kind of strife, repenting. And then I believe he'll, he'll work the other things out. Okay, Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel or Babel. How many have heard that story, the Tower of Babel? You've heard that one, okay. I won't spend a whole lot of time on that, but it's an interesting time. This is in the world when there was just one language to start with. But let's just read this, Genesis 11, 1 through 8. 
Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may become, may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and the tower and the, the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now you might think, that is really weird. That's a weird, weird story. And it does sound weird when you don't understand some of the context with it. But God had told them just shortly before that, and really day one in creation, or day whatever it was, I think it was day one, but one of those days in creation, he told the people, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So when, when this leadership, whoever was leading this, decided to build this tower, and uh, you know we'll talk about that in a minute why, but remember God's overarching goal? Was it to build this big thing to make a name for themselves? No, he wanted, to go, he wanted his people to go to the ends of the earth with his message of being united to him and united with his people, his believers. So, like I said, at this time, they all spoke the same language, which made it a lot easier. Picture yourself in your work environment right now, and the people you work with are speaking different languages. How effective would that be? And maybe that happens now. <laughs> Maybe that happens now, but you cannot work, you can't move forward very well, can you? You can't, it's frustrating. And so they were all speak, so they had this unity, uh, uh, same language, unity of speech. They also had the latest technology. And the, the, the way I think that is, the way that I think that is, it says they use bricks instead of stones. I think they've been building with stones, but they came up with the technology of making a brick. Well, if I'm going to build a house, I would rather have it brick than put, trying to put stones together. I know they make stone homes, but think of how much sturdier that is to use those bricks and that tar. And so they were using their latest technology. And, and, the, Lord, and the Lord also said, they are as one people. They have set this goal. Now, I imagine that they used a lot of slave labor for this, the same way the Pharaoh did later to build all those things he was building. So I don't think it was like a peaceful kind of, or a pleasant kind of oneness there. I don't know that, I'm guessing that. We don't know their motives. But you know, this is just right after the flood. My thought was, are they trying to build a tower that the flood won't take it out? You know, I mean, I, I thought that. Is that why they're building this tower so high? Was that what part of it was? They didn't like God's way. We're gonna do it our way. And so we do know that wasn't God's way. Was it just a pride thing? I don't know. So their focus changed from God's focus, didn't it? Quite drastically. And so he wanted this change. He did not, God did not want this to continue on. And it says he came down um, and spoke to them. 
And um, basically, he scattered him. Um, so the speaking the same language, having this oneness, were factors that enabled them to defy God in a powerful way. A lot more powerful than if I just decide I'm going to build something. You know, what's that going to look like? I'm not, I'm not, yeah, no, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So anyway, this group working together is an example. This is a great example of using unity to defy God. And that should be the last thing we ever do. Um, and then, of course, they, they tie idol worship back to this first tower and those kinds of things. But oneness is powerful, but in the wrong way here. Okay. Um, the power of unity between and among believers is essential. Like I talked about for winning the world. Uh, we have to protect relationships and all of those things. Unity with other believers requires loving deeply. Um, love is a key factor in every good relationship. True, sincere love, not fake love, not temporary love, not selfish, not self-seeking. And this is the kind of love that only, again, springs from a heart committed to Jesus and filled with his passions, his goal of reaching the world. I picked out two verses in 1 Peter. I was reading these probably about three or four years ago, and they just, it just burned in my heart when I saw this. And I've never talked about them in this, probably ever. And so I wanted to, to read something here. Um, Peter was writing to a people who were in a situation much like ours, in which Christians were being denied their rights and freedoms. Uh, tolerance, from, for, for, tolerance for Christians was going down, decreasing. And the Romans at the time, the, who were controlling everything, were bent on banning anything that interfered with their government plan. And Christianity became a target. Christians were discriminated against. They were treated violently, often imprisoned, and their property taken. So Peter is appealing to them uh, to continue on, and I'm not going to read all that, but he's continue on, keep on. But the words he used in two verses, like I said, hit my heart and burned in my heart in a way that I know it was God speaking to me, and he's challenging us. It says in 1 Peter 1.22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then over in 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. These are powerful verses. Did you hear it in there? Loving deeply. And so, of course, I had to read what that meant. The word deeply means without ceasing. And I think that's part of the meaning. I think it's more than just never-ending love. But how many times is our love for somebody going to go up or down based on what they're doing at the moment? So, 
Sincere here means not fake. Not fake love. Real hot love that comes from the heart. The word love in here is the word for agape, if you've heard ever heard that Greek term. That just means that crazy, unconditional, endless love that God has for us. By the way, you really find that in your times of prayer, in the secret place, I call it. That's where you find that love. That's where you feel that love and where you get to really know him. So I just took the liberty of rewriting these two verses. Bringing in the ideas that I found about it. This is how love ought to affect your relationships. Now that you have made yourself pure by obeying the word so that you have a sincere, non-fake love for each other, love one another deeply without ceasing from your heart. For you have been born again with the imperishable seed of the living and enduring word of God that causes my love to grow in your heart. Above all, love each other deeply without ceasing, because the unconditional, endless love of God will cause you to be willing to forgive each other for many sins. In doing so, you will erase these many sins by forgiving them and overriding your reflex for revenge. This is how God, God's love deals with our sins. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk about earlier, and I, I meant to, was the whole idea of forgiveness, forgiving each other. Because if we do not forgive each other, first of all, the Lord Jesus said, my father can't forgive you. That's serious stuff. That was him just saying that. That is serious. So we have to somehow, and I'm not saying that's easy. That means likely you are going to have to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive until you win. Otherwise, unforgiveness is winning. You have to find a way, and God will help you. I mean, if anything, he wants this relationship with you. He wants, because that interferes with this relationship, and it, in, it certainly interferes with these relationships. Unforgiveness is, a, is probably one of the greatest causes of disunity out there. And so he says, forgive like I forgive. So picture Jesus on the cross, people laughing at him, scoffing, everyone leaving. He knows what it means to forgive. His focus didn't change. From up on that cross, he was saying, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I grew up in a family that didn't show much affection. Well, <laughs> there was not a lot of affection there. I had a rough... Um, unforgiving, angry exterior by the time I got to high school. But I have twin brothers who were a year younger than me. Now, they were really good for fighting with until they got bigger than me and for yelling at and uh, they're also very good at picking up my slack. I remember picking up my slack. Uh, they probably worked 10 times harder than I did. And they also were good for teaching me to play softball when they had been embarrassed one time too many by how I played it. They were on the high school football and wrestling teams and were very well-loved players. If you knew Dean and Dale, you loved them. One day in some discussion with their teammates, 
the conversation had come around to me and my embarrassing ways, and they stood up for me. They showed me. They really, they showed the other people, and they showed me too, but they showed the other people around them, their teammates, that they couldn't talk bad about their sister, even when she didn't deserve it. And I know what that did in my heart. I've never forgotten that feeling. I, had, I hadn't felt defended before. And I was forever united with those two brothers in a way that I didn't even know was possible. And that's what a heart of a family should be. Some of you know that. I didn't know it at that time. And this is what the heart of unity based on love should look like in the body of Christ. Do you see why the opposite, the gossiping about one another, talking bad about one another, do you see why it's so bad? And I wasn't a believer then, but that love in my heart only increased for my siblings. If you've heard me talk about my siblings, you know. They showed me what unity and family looked like. So I was preparing for this message. I had just had this thought, and... Uh, it's kind of a unique thought, but I thought, Jesus would hug a cactus, but not like a literal cactus, but people, my husband says, their needs are sticking out. You know the people that it's hard to be around? Jesus would hug a cactus. Those with a rough, unforgiving exterior, those we call unlovable. So what does unity in a church look like? It always starts and stays with love. You love by faith because you won't always feel like doing the things that promote unity. You serve alongside those you know and those you don't know, those you like and those you don't like so much. You invite them to your home and you show up with food at theirs when they have a need. You ask them how they are and you listen more than you talk. You go to their baby shower or their retirement party with even some kind of a gift. Even if you don't know them, we're part of a family, right? We're part of a family. And I love what I'm seeing. I'm not saying you aren't doing this. I love what I'm seeing with all the gifts that you guys have taken on with these families in need. I love it. You pray for them when you know they have a need. You are transparent with them because you both need it. You speak well of them always, even when they don't deserve it. Jesus does everything for us, even when we don't deserve it. And I encourage you, in any and all relationships, if you are only talking about the things that bring division, change your language. Change your language to, I know my father wants me to have a good relationship. That's using your faith. Speaking those words will start to build in you a faith, won't it? Like if you're saying that, it starts to build something in you that's positive and good. It starts to build an expectation. God's going to do something here. But if all you ever are talking about is the negative, 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 you won't even help yourself in that you're going to feel that negativity in that relationship. I'm speaking from personal experience. So what we've said today is unity is God's way. Unity is powerful, but division is also powerful. 
Unity with other believers requires loving deeply. And I believe with all my heart that at Village Church, we are compelled by love for the sake of the person next to us. So we're going to have, I'm going to pray here in a minute, but I'm just going to ask you some questions. Um, if you want to just close your eyes. My first question for you is, have you truly united your heart with the master of all the universe? He lovingly asks you to submit to him, to give your life to him, to give your heart to him, to make him your Lord and Savior today. If you want to do that today, would you just raise your hand? People have their eyes closed. The second question. Have you aligned your heart with the goals of our Father's heart? His overarching goal is to see every person come into the family of believers. He asks us to submit to his greater plans for the world, to see everyone brought to the unity of the faith. We do it by faith because he asks us to do it. Will you fully commit today to telling others your story so they can find unity with our Father? Raise your hand if you will. Commit yourself to sharing your story with others so they can find thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Lastly, will you commit now to loving one another in the family of God deeply, sincerely, without ceasing for the sake of the person and persons next to you? Raise your hand if you're willing to love deeply in a new way. Thank you. Father, just as you heard your son's cry before going to the cross, I believe you are hearing our cries today, Lord, our cries for unity within our body, within ourselves even, Lord, within the body of Christ, so we can fulfill your overarching goal, the one that you bled and died for. Lord. You're the only one who can do that. Help us to walk this love, loving deeply out in our lives. We thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for your presence and thank you for your powerful intervention in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.